Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back everybody to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. This is episode 86. Uh, we are recording 3 o'clock in the afternoon Pacific time on August 2nd. Yes, it is August now, which is just crazy. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Guys, this week, like, all sports started back up. Like, NBA's back, MLB's back, at least for now. Hockey's back. Did you guys notice any... Uh, the fact that sports were back, did it cramp your uh, your movie-watching style at all? Uh, sort of. I, yeah, I mean, I usually when I would fit in a movie, I turned on, like, an NBA game, because it was on, like, all day, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I texted Todd at one point saying, Friday matinee NBA is, like, the closest thing to March Madness we were going to get this year, so I was all over that. Zach, how about you? I was noticing the NBA schedule, too. Some of those games start at 12 o'clock here, which means 10 a.m. there. And any time I notice a game that starts in to at in the a.m. on the West Coast, I immediately think of our Vegas trip with the IUPUI Wright State game with the 8 a.m. tip time. God bless the West Coast for that. Yeah, that was the game that opened before, like, the book opened, yep. right? Yes, yeah. although I, I don't remember if I made a bet on it or not. Uh one of many things I don't remember from that trip, but I, I, I should have. Weren't we, were, we, you guys weren't allowed to make a bet on that game, right? Because they didn't have a line for it. And it yeah, right, Todd? Isn't that yeah we, we were going to have to go to another book, but I couldn't because the poker tournament was starting at 8 o'clock too, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And we had to get our, uh, you know, Irish coffee in before before that happened, so. It was a busy exactly. morning. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Todd, do you have any uh, any quick Emmy uh, nomination reactions? Uh, I didn't prep you for this. I'm just going to throw it at you. Well, I mean, it, I just, I find it completely ridiculous that the Emmys continuously ignore Rhea Seahorn. Like, she is the best part of Better Call Saul, and she has not ever been nominated there somehow, even though it was, like, the best, I mean, I think it was the best performance I saw on TV the last year, so. Other than that, I mean, it seemed like normal Emmy stuff. Oh, tons of Netflix shows. I heard there were like what some like thirty or forty Netflix shows that were nominated for things. It's ridiculous. Yeah, they had like a hundred and twenty nominations or something like that. Yeah. I I know I sent it to you guys. Uh, the coolest part of the Emmy nominations was the fact that Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins got an Emmy nomination for cinematography on the Apollo Eleven documentary. That's just amazing. <laughs> that is pretty awesome. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's get into it. Into this. Uh, make sure you subscribe, rate, review on uh, Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora. Uh, also, uh, if you are subscribing to us, you notice that on Friday, a uh, a new kind of offshoot of the Almost Sideways podcast, a new like side series called uh, the Daily Notes, uh, debuted. Where Adam Daly, the fourth member of the Almost Sideways crew. The one that we uh, constantly crap on when it comes to trying to guess his uh, power rankings list. Uh, he has started his own kind of side project that will be posted as a part of the Almost Sideways podcast. 
Uh, right now he's thinking it'll come out about once a month or so. Uh, his first one debuted on Friday where he reviewed a new video game, The Last of Us Part Two. So uh, you can be looking for that. And uh, he's, he's got some, uh, some exciting stuff kind of in the works there. So uh, look for that to come out as a part of the Almost Sideways podcast. We are a brand now. We are, we are diversifying we are. our portfolio. The Almost Sideways family of networks. Jeff that's, Bezos, that's look out. <laughs> All right, well, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm having, I have, I have a feel, I have a sneaky feeling we're going to be talking about the great state of Kansas on this podcast. So in honor of the great state of Kansas, one of the two best states in the country, uh, I'm drinking the Ad Astra Amber Ale out of the Free State Brewing Company, first legal brewing company, first legal brewery in Kansas that opened in 1989. State motto here is Ad Astra Per Aspera, something like that, and uh, I can think of nothing more um, reverential to our our beautiful state. All right, all right, Todd. Uh, I'm drinking a mix of rum and like lemon sparkling water and cranberry juice, and I have maraschino cherry in there too. I just threw some shit in a cup because uh, I don't really like rum, so it takes away the flavor. You threw shit in a cup? Exactly. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, well, I'm drinking, uh, I, I have a feeling we're going to be talking about the Oregon coast on this podcast, too, so I'm drinking mm. a beer that was brewed there. Uh, this is, We got a, a couple weeks ago, we got a variety pack of Pelican uh, Brewery beer, and so this is the, the Beak Breaker Double IPA. It, it's it's a solid beer. They, they have just some great stuff, so, uh, so yeah. Cheers. All right. Well, let's get into our, our first featured... No, wait, no, not first featured movie review. What have we been watching? That's what comes first here. I know what I'm go- what I'm doing. Todd, uh, what have you been watching this week? <laughs> uh, not a ton, because we had to watch a bunch for this, but I, I actually just watched a movie. It was uh, from last year called What Men Want, which is the gender-flipped version of What Women Want, which I think we should deep dive at some point. Uh, we should not deep dive what men want because it's a terrible movie. Uh, it's Taraji P. Henson's the main character, and she works at a sports agency, and she's sort of bullied around by her coworkers because it's a male-dominated industry, and she develops the ability to hear men's thoughts. And it's really shallow and and it's it's not funny. Uh, th- what Women Want worked on a lot of levels, and this one fails at basically all of those. It's like it's a one and a half star movie. The best part is uh, Pete Davidson and uh, Josh Brini have a have an interesting like closeted relationship or something in the movie, and it's it's actually pretty funny. And th- those are funny actors, but the rest of the people it had a huge cast of like of famous people. Like Carl Anthony Towns has like a, a whole scene. And, like, the, the Mark Cuban and Grant Hill are playing poker for some reason uh, uh, with some people. Tracy Morgan's okay. But, I mean, it, it's a really a bunch of famous people, and it, it all is pretty much a disaster. All right. Nice. Nice. It looked right. pretty bad. Zach. I would, I would also be down with the What Women Want deep dive. That's a, that's a good call, Todd. 20-year anniversary, I would, too. too. That'd be fun. Um, all right, so uh, I watched a documentary this week on Canopy called Geraldine Ferraro Paving the Way, uh, which is a profile of the uh, first woman to be on a major presidential ticket. She was Walter Mondale's nominee for vice president in the 1984 presidential election. Uh, they lost pretty terribly. They lost 49 out of 50 states. That's, the, that's that election um, to Ronald Reagan. 
the documentary, though, is directed by Ferraro's daughter. Um, uh, her name is Donna Zaccaro. And um, it's a, it basically a profile of her life. Uh, she kind of, um, for one thing, she was, uh, a lot of things you learn about her, she was a stay-at-home mom for about 15 years before she pursued a career in law and became the district attorney of her district in New York City. She ran for Congress and uh, as a, as a tough-on-crime Democrat, and she kind of rose up the ranks by um, getting, having a lot of good relationships with people, um, a lot of admiration, uh, not just from feminists, but also from people on the other side of the aisle. Um, the movie's sort of a good reminder about how the 80s, uh, it, 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 well, really before this era, um, politics in a lot of ways were a lot more civil. And actually, uh, some of the strongest um, on-camera presences in this movie are George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush, who really have really nice things to say about Geraldine Ferraro, in spite of the fact that George H.W. Bush uh, debated her in 1984. And Barbara Bush later said uh, she should stop being acting uh, like such a five-letter word that rhymes with the word uh, ditch. She was not talking about the B word, though. She was talking about witch. At least that's what she says. Um, anyway, pretty good documentary. It feels kind of C-Spanish. It's not like the most charismatic thing in the world. But Geraldine Ferraro is, Ferraro is a significant American who should deserve uh, more recognition, especially given that in the next few days, Joe Biden will be announcing a female vice president of his own. So it'll be the third time that has happened in American history. And Geraldine Ferraro, of course, paved the way for that. Um, solid three-star movie. I also re-watched uh, Marriage Story this week, which I believe I texted to Terry. It's like a really good movie. It should have been on my top 10 list of uh, 2019. It will, it, it, I think in coming years, it will grow maybe even higher on my list. But it's a really, really good, solid rewatch. Yeah, I think that still stands as my number two of last year. I love that movie. It's it, so good. It, it was better for me on the second time. Really, really great movie. Adam Driver should have won Best Actor. All right. Uh, I watched a... a quite a bit of stuff this week um the best thing uh that i'm not going to talk about at some other point that i saw this week was uh corpus christi it was just an awesome awesome movie um borderline four-star movie for me um just yeah just outstanding uh todd talked about that one a couple weeks ago but i'm what i'm going to talk about is um my anniversary watch of the week which is from 2000 uh, it was nominated for two Oscars, Best Supporting Actor and Best Makeup, and that is Shadow of the Vampire, um, starring John Malkovich, Willem Dafoe, uh, directed by E. Elias Merhage. My wife and I were debating on how exactly to pronounce his name, and neither of us really figured it out. Um, this is the fictional based on a legend story i think it might be the first like based on a rumor story i've ever watched um about the filming of the 1922 classic nosferatu which is a ripoff of dracula and it goes with the premise that uh the star of the movie max schreck who played uh the the vampire who played nosferatu is actually a vampire and that's why he was so good and so the the uh, director of the film, played by Malkovich, uh, is like hiding the fact that he's an actual vampire and just trying to say that he's really method, which is what everybody said when Nosferatu came out. Um, Willem Dafoe plays the creature, uh, plays Max Shrek, and just is talk about disappearing into a role. He is outstanding in this. He completely deserved his nomination. Um, Malkovich is doing Malkovich things. 
Um, it it kind of felt a little like like Ed Wood, but for like a like in a serious way. Um, as it it's really kind of unlike any movie I've ever seen. I I really got into it. It was a lot of fun. Um, kind of creepy at the end as everything kind of spirals out of control in, in what's happening. Uh, three and a half star movie. Uh, it's really interesting. This guy uh, that made this, he only he's only made like three feature films in his entire career. He made one in like 1989, then he made Shadow of the Vampire, and then a couple years later he made uh, Suspect Zero. And those are the only feature films he ever made. Um especially considering you had something like this. I heard, I read somewhere Willem Dafoe got cast in Spider-Man because of this movie. And this was also the first film that Nicolas Cage produced. I thought that was interesting too. So anyways, Shadow of the Vampire, three and a half stars. You guys seen this one? Yeah, I saw it a long time ago. I I, I remember I've, liking it to an extent, yeah. I've not seen it, but I would be curious to see if Nicolas Cage would have been better than Willem Dafoe in the role of Max Shrek. That feels like... I don't think cre- so. I mean, well, this is a more, it's a more serious movie, right? But, you know... Yeah, it's a, it's if, a serious movie. I would like to see a world where Nicolas Cage plays an actor who actually is a vampire. <clears throat> I think he actually did, kind of... did that. Didn't he? Wasn't that Vampire's Kiss? <laughs> I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I, I kind of feel like I did myself a disservice by watching this before I ever saw Nosferatu, but it's still a great movie without seeing the the original the original. Yeah, you film. don't need to see Plan Nine from Outer Space to enjoy Ed Wood. That's very true. Very true. Uh, all right. Well, now let's get into our first uh, uh, featured review here. Um, this is the first one that we're reviewing all together that we had to go on to VOD and rent. And what is, uh, what is ironic about it is the name of this movie is The Rental. Let me show you out back and then I'll get out of your hair. The stars are insane out here. I should have brought the telescope. What do you need a telescope in the city for? Unless you're like a peeping Tom or something. <laughs> and uh, Todd, you're going to talk about this one first. Tell us uh, what it's about and what you thought. Okay, it is directed by Dave Franco. And it's a really basic horror movie setup. It, almost to the point that you feel like it should have already been made before. Like, I mean, it, the setup is so is so perfect for a horror movie. Uh, it's about two couples who are set to go on vacation by renting a lakeside home. Dan Stevens plays Charlie, and Jeremy Allen White plays Josh, who is his brother. And their wives are out, played by Allison Brie and Sheila Vond, who was the girl in A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which I I knew it was somebody, but I, I couldn't picture the face place it when i when i was actually watching the movie uh but mina and charles uh they work together and that's sort of why they decide to go on the trip uh they get to the rental home and they run into this the the guy who rents it to him named taylor who's played by toby huss who is one of those guys that is in in everything i looked it up i've seen him in 35 movies and i only remember his character like twice but uh he's 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 sinister immediately and he's perfect for that because that kind of role but things get weird when they feel like someone is stalking them because uh they do some ecstasy, and uh, but uh, it, it turns out that it's basically true. Uh, the movie is pretty competently directed by Dave Franco. It's uh, it isn't the type of movie you would expect him to do with his debut because he's a, a comic actor. But I mean, he does it smart because these movies always get seen and they develop cult statuses and they uh, spawn sequels like all the time. It has a really cool like dreamlike opening, which is a sequence that uh, seems like it was made by a more polished director. Uh, he he definitely has learned a few, to, a few things from his brother and other directors like 
Sean Durkin is a is a producer on the movie. He directed Martha Mars May Marlene, and I could see a lot of parallels with that. And he he also has st- said that he uh, picked the brain of people he's worked with, like Barry Jenkins and Seth Rogen, and, and that makes a lot of sense as well. But his co-writer on the movie is Joe Swanberg, who is a mumblecore director, and that is uh, the biggest influence I see on this movie because the movie almost didn't need to be a horror movie. It could have just been like Drinky Buddies and been like this like relationship study kind of uh, hangout movie. And uh, but I mean, because the, the eventual descent into horror is kind of baffling and kind of dumb. But it's shot claustrophobically enough that it actually still kind of works. Uh, you think like the villain is going to be like Michael Myers and be like this like slow uh, stalker type, but I mean he he like it's like and then he like tears up the stairs. I, I was kind of shocked that he actually wasn't just like walking around. But the last 15 minutes I, I feel like are really good. It's the best part of the movie. It's really like Hitchcockian and stuff. I'm not crazy about the movie. I I do like that we don't know like the villain's motives or anything because that. Uh, makes it more unsettling. Uh, I, I appreciate the idea more than actually like the 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 execution of the movie. It's a it's a two and a half star movie for me. All right, Zach, how about you? Yeah, I'm gonna echo a lot of Todd's sentiment. Um, I could definitely see the influence of Joe Swanberg. This is like a total mumblecore setup. I felt like I was gonna watch like Hump Day or something like that. Nah, maybe that's not a good example, but. Um, yeah, um, as a director, you know, Dave Franco is kind of interesting. I think he resists the impulse of a lot of first-time directors, especially first-time directors who are gravitating from acting or who are well-known, uh, even before their directorial debut. But he resists the temptation to make it kind of flashy and try to establish his own unique style, which sometimes is a real real bad foible of first-time directors. Um, this is actually a really well-shot movie, considering um, it's low budget. Um, and it's, it's stylized, but not in a way that draws too much attention to itself, which I really like. Um, I really like this movie. Um, I thought that uh, the setup was really interesting in the sense that it was much more about the characters and their kind of issues and their relationship problems, much more than it was about the killer. In fact, the killer doesn't even really make an appearance in the movie until we're quite a bit in. And even though, you know, uh, Franco establishes a sort of macabre tone, um, really the, the, the center of the movie is kind of the emotional volatility of, of these characters. And that's sort of what provides the, the, the horror thrust. Um, I do have to say, a couple things also that I really like about this movie. There is a dog in this movie. Now, anytime you watch a horror movie, you know, the dog is just this token, tokenized creature that usually ends up dead. I'm not going to say whether the dog lives or dies in this movie, but I really like what they did with the dog in this movie. It was very unexpected. Another thing I like about this movie is that you think one of the characters is going to be the villain and again, uh, you're not all necessarily right about that. It's, it, it, I think the movie actually goes in some surprising directions. And I will also say that, that I would agree with Todd. It's, it has a really strong ending. If The more you think about the ending, um, and this is not always true with horror movies, it actually wraps everything up really well. The explanation, I think, is really solid. You don't have a lot of like, how did the, well then explain this to me kind of questions. You don't have to suspend disbelief in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, the thing is, it's, it's not really about the killer, though, ultimately, or, or uh, it's really about the, these people, and um, I like the people in this movie. I like this movie a lot. This is a solid three-star uh, movie for me. All right. So Todd's at two and a half. Zach's at three. I'm going two and a half. Um, I, I I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. I love the setup. Um, I love the actors. They all do a great job. It was great to see uh, Jeremy Allen White who uh, is, uh, for those who have seen Shameless, he plays Lip in Shameless. It's great to see him in something something else. 
Um, but they, they all do a great job, and you're right, it's all about the, the characters for the first half, and then as, you know, as the, the horror-thriller part of it kicks in, all that characterization feels like it kind of goes out the window a little bit. Um, I, I agree that the more and more I think about how the ending and the payoff, the more I like it, but in the moment, it was really kind of disappointing, just in, I, it, it just felt kind of empty, the way the way it it approaches the payoff for me. Um, so uh, so that was part of that's part of the two and a half. Um, it, it it was engaging. It was short. It's under it's under ninety minutes, which is good. Um, and but one thing, the one of the other reasons this cannot be a three star movie is so this takes place. On the Oregon coast, it's filmed in Bandon, which is in like south southern Oregon on the coastline. Um, and I knew it was Oregon coast as soon as I as soon as they you know, no other place do you walk around a beach mm-hmm. that looks like that in like a winter coat in the middle of the summer. So of course it had to be the Oregon coast. But um, uh, I watched the credits all the way to the end, and it gave like the special thanks. And in the special thanks, it mentions the Widmer Brewery because they're drinking. They, they brought like a six pack of Widmer along with them, but they spelled it wrong. Oh, they spelled it W I N D M E R Windmer. It's Widmer W I D. And I was like, dude, you can't, you can't shout out somebody and then have a typo on the name of what you're shouting out. That's just, that's just poor right there. I mean, shot good. Good job for getting a local brewery's beer in the in the shot, but to spell it wrong in the credits, come on, man. So, there you go. That was the biggest disappointment of them all is that they misspelled Widmer. <laughs> That's inexcusable. Inexcusable. Maybe it was like a. Uh, it was meant to be on purpose, though. Like you know, Inglorious Bastards or something like that. I mean, maybe it was like. Dave Franco was like messing with your head. Like, if you're a true Oregonian, you know we misspelled the the label. Yeah, that must be it. <laughs> I love that. That's your biggest flaw in the movie. I mean, uh, that, that if, if you're even gonna stay until the end credits to watch it, uh, I mean, you you still probably have to look really at that small typeface and somehow I. Uh, I mean, what are the odds that anyone else would have this flaw that you have? I'm am go- going like maybe yeah maybe oh, one in every ten thousand people would have this problem. <laughs> maybe the CEO of the Widmer Brewing Company. Yeah, you and <laughs> you and him, you can team up. I and I'll, honestly, I was looking at it because I was like, okay, this is Dave Franco's directorial debut. I could I could see him putting some interesting stuff in the special thanks at the end of the credits. So I was actually paying attention to him. I was like, who did he think? I, I'm curious to see who he thanked. And there wasn't really, from what I could tell, many, like, significant things in there. But then I saw Widmer, I'm like, wait, you spelled it wrong. But doesn't it get kind of canceled out for the fact that it takes place in Oregon and it's actually shot in Oregon? Like, how many Northwest movies say they take place in the Northwest and are clearly not shot? I think the movie gets some props for that. True, true. However, I'm pretty sure they were uh, driving down the Columbia River Gorge to get to Bandon. Well, they might have. Maybe they. Maybe they lived in. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Pendleton or something. Yeah, or Hermiston or Lagrand. Maybe. Maybe they wanted to go up to Portland on the I eighty four. I don't know. Good question. Yeah, yeah. Geek out over Oregon geography. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, all right. Well, anything else you guys want to want to throw in there about this one? Don't do ecstasy.
It will mess. It will mess you up. Actually, that's, that's yes, not that true. Is, See, what I thought that's the moral of the story. What I thought was going to happen is once I started taking the ecstasy, I thought, oh, oh, this is going to turn into like midsummer or something. We're going to see some crazy shit. And and to my relief, the movie didn't do that. And I, that's what I like about it. You you kind of think that the movie is set in one direction, and then it's. I, I think it has a lot of surprises. I think Wiley, it's actually a really kind of surprising, unpredictable story that that um, is is really well developed. I'm disappointed that uh, I'm I'm the only one who seems to really like it. It, it it it's unexpected yet has a lot of like stereotypical horror moments. Like there there's a moment where you have a a girl who's not scantily clad but is is running through the forest with a sprained ankle with a killer chasing her. I mean, isn't that in like ninety five percent of horror movies? Yeah. That yes. <laughs> 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 so i mean it, it goes it, it hits a lot of classic tropes but at the same time it, it it does keep you guessing every now and then it it takes some turns you don't expect all right well we've got two two and a half star reviews a three star um the one thing that's nice about this yes it's on vod for rental however it's not the 20 dollar rental it's like i think it was 5.99 you can get it pretty much anywhere so uh it's nice that it's a cheaper rental right now, and uh, and yeah, just kind of a fun watch. I think Todd and I even would agree that it's it's a it's a fun hour and a half watch, even if even uh, if we don't fully recommend it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that is uh, our featured review part one, and we have another featured review uh, this week, and it's kind of a spotlight segment. Uh, right before we recorded last week. Uh, a few hours before news broke that um, Olivia de Havilland had passed away at the age of 104, uh, one of the last like links to to classic classic Hollywood, um, an amazing film star, and so we thought we would, uh, as as Zach texted us midweek, we should come to the stable an Olivia de Havilland film, and so uh, we did some quick IMDb searches for something that would be easily accessible streaming. And we landed on a film that uh, came out in 1940. So this is its 80th anniversary, um, which is just crazy that Olivia de Havilland was a full-grown woman in 80 years ago making movies. And it was a year after Gone with the Wind came out. Uh, this movie is called Santa Fe Trail. Uh, Errol Flynn, uh, Olivia de Havilland, and Ronald Reagan are the three main characters. Zach, you're talking about this one first. Since it takes place in Kansas, uh, tell us about Santa Fe Trail and what you thought. Okay, so Santa Fe Trail is uh, the uh, 1940 film directed by Michael Curtiz, put out by Warner Brothers, starring Errol Flynn, uh, Ronald, Ronald Reagan, and Olivia de Havilland, as, as Terry kind of said. Um, this is a movie that is uh, about uh, bleeding Kansas, and it's as the movie opens, we're at uh, the West Point Military Academy, where somehow all these very famous generals that would get a lot of notoriety and fame during the Civil War are all kind of miraculously in the same graduating class. So you've got George Custer, you've got Jeb Stewart, and then you of course have Robert E. Lee. Hey, look, look, it's it's just the who's who of great civil, great generals that uh, did incredible things for our country. Um, I. Kept 
kept on expecting to see like Buck Turgidson, you know, or maybe like General Hummel from The Rock. This is a who's who of great military figures in American history that, that we're seeing. Anyway, so um, they are shipped out to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, uh, which is the site of hotbed animosity between those evil abolitionists. They are the ones who want to free the slaves, and they are led by their evil agitator, John Brown. But you know what? The South, hey, you know what? Slavery, it, you know, it's bad, but you know what? Let's just let slavery kind of die out uh, so that, um, you know, the South will kind of figure it out on their own. John Brown is an evil agitator who wants to come into bleeding Kansas and kill everyone who may believe in pro-slavery sentiment. Anyway, um, I'm sorry, I need to get that bias kind of out of the way. This is one of the most historically inaccurate movies I think I've ever seen. Um, I mean, you know, you can point to the fact that uh, they completely omit basically every relevant piece of information about Bleeding Kansas, like the Sack of Lawrence or the Potawatomi Massacre, or they really uh, misguide all the facts. And the movie has a very, as I was kind of saying earlier, pro, pro-Southern, pro pro-Confederacy agenda. This in itself is not particularly remarkable because a lot of Civil War movies that from this era had a pro- kind of pro-Confederacy bent. We could call this a lost cause uh, movie. Maybe in the same vein as um, uh, Gone with the Wind or uh, Birth of a Nation. Um, The difference is with Gone with the Wind, Gone with the Wind actually has some compelling drama in it, and it actually has black characters who speak. There are a few black characters in this movie. They are heinous stereotypes. Not that they aren't really in Gone with the Wind, but at least in Gone with the Wind, they have a little little bit more screen time and a little bit more activity. Um, this movie is a plotting sort of disaster, and I have to say I am biased because I'm from uh, Kansas, and Kansas, uh, you know, this region of Kansas that I live in proudly boasts that we were a free state when we were admitted uh, into the Union. Um, we rejected slavery, and the only reason why there was ever any bloodshed was because of those evil bushwhacking marauders from Missouri that came in and burned down Lawrence. So I have a, uh, I have a gripe with this movie, which is personal. Um, I'm going to try to leave that aside and kind of just focus on on um, the aesthetic, you know, uh, misery of this movie. Uh, the, the, the battle scenes are lame. The acting is terrible. There is uh, the, the scenes, the, the, the borderline homoerotic scenes between Ronald Reagan and Errol Flynn are just hor- horribly um, misguided and unintentionally funny. Um, and then the over-the-top portrayal of the evildoer John Brown and his evil doing to try to save slaves, played by Raymond Massey, um, is just a, a laughing stock. This movie is a travesty. It is one of the worst movies I think I've ever seen. Um, I want to give it zero stars because I don't see any redeeming value that anyone in 2020 should watch this movie with its unabashed pro-slavery message. The only reason I won't is because um, it did kind of inspire me to look back on the actual history of Leading Kansas and John Brown, and uh, it was sort of a nice sort of historical refresher. This movie was made 80 years after the beginning of the Civil War. We are 80 years after the beginning of this movie. Imagine a movie coming out today that would defend uh, Nazism in the way that this movie defends slavery. It is heinous, it is uh, appalling, and um, it's a complete train wreck. Curiously enough, it is not my worst rated movie of 1940. The worst rated movie I have of 1940 is the German propaganda film Jude Seuss. Those are the two worst movies of the 1940s, by the way. <laughs> when, you're, when you're ranked on a list with uh, German propaganda, it's probably not a good sign. Wow, okay. I, I had a feeling you were going to come in hot on that one, so uh, so I, I, I let you start it out. Uh, I 
I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I, I enjoyed it a little more than you did. I'm giving it two stars. Halfway through this movie, I had no idea where it was going to go or what the what where it was going to stand. Because you had, you had Errol Flynn there and uh, who was playing a Southerner who, yeah, was talking about let's just let, let the South figure out slavery in their own time and eventually it'll go away. Um, and then you have John Brown who is you know, fight, a fighting abolitionist. And I'm like, okay, this has the potential of telling a very fascinating story of, um, you know, someone who is in John Brown, who is, who is fighting for the right thing, but maybe taking it a little too far and, and battling with that, that fine line of, of how far is too far when you're, when you're protesting how much could could you change the mind of a guy like the Errol Flynn character? Um, and then it just completely cops out at the end of it and and doesn't resolve any of it and just says, no, 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 the, these are the good guys, so they have to win. John Brown's a bad guy. He has to lose, and that's it. And like, but you, you could have told such an interesting story at such a fascinating part of our nation's history that could have, um, that could have really been... Um, been poignant and really honestly spoken a lot to the times we're in today instead it just kind of fell flat um but i was intrigued by it i i i thought the performances were all right um i was kind of bummed that we picked this movie to honor olivia de havilland and she's in like 10 minutes of it even though she's second build i was like come i mean come on i mean she was probably second build because it was an errol flynn olivia de havilland movie and they were paired together a lot at that time um, so that was kind of a bummer. We may need to do another De Havilland film where she, you know, actually stars in it later on. But, um, but yeah, I'm going to, it maybe maybe one and a half, one and a half, two, somewhere in there. Um, I was entertained by it. Um, I was intrigued by it until it completely disappointed me with not resolving any of the stuff it could have actually addressed. Todd, what'd you think? Okay, well, Olivia de Havilland, yeah, I mean, she's, like, stunning when she comes on screen. She's she's kind of awesome, but, yeah, it's that love triangle. It's completely pointless and does not serve the plot at all. But, uh, I don't know. I, I think you guys are pretty off base on this. I, I actually, okay, so I, I think this is about something different. Like, the, the historical inaccuracies, yeah, whatever. But, it, I mean, it paints this, this picture of, like, these two friends who are going to be on opposite sides of the Civil War, like, a year later... And, but they would give their lives for each other because, I mean, they're like, they're, this, this is like brotherhood, essentially. But, and it paints the radical group of, of, uh, of abolitionists as the villains because it's telling you from the, the side of the South. And if you can't tell stories from other perspectives, then what are you even doing making movies? Like, because growing up in that, in that environment, Stuart knew nothing but uh, what, what, the, what the South, um, like, all, all their ideals and everything. And he sort of reluctantly accepts them. But, like, if you see someone who's trying to upend those things, then you're going to see them as these threatening villains, and that's why they portray John uh, uh, Brown that way. It's almost like a Letters from Iwo Jima kind of thing. It's, uh, like, they tell it from the perspective of the South, and it's kind of jarring to watch because, obviously, it's uh, it's wrong. To But it, it, I think at the time that it was trying to be, do something creative, but that was a little advanced at the time, and that's why the movie doesn't really have all that much notoriety now. Uh, Michael Curtiz is a, I, I think he's a great director. He made some of the best movies of that era. He made Yankee Doodle Dandy and like that. This is another movie that was trying to excite people to uh, uh, ab about the war, and uh, and like 
uh, join the military and like have pride in your nation. I, it's not propaganda. It's not pro-slavery. I I think it's kind of a great movie, and I I, I think it's also sort of an important movie. I give it three stars. Wow. Well, and uh, I see what you're saying of how it's it's told from that southern perspective, but even letters from Iwo Jima, you have those moments where the the Japanese characters are saying, "What we're doing is wrong," and 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 you have people fighting against against that, and in this there is there is none of that. I mean, you like like I was saying, you have that you have those moments there where. Um, and, and uh, yes, it's told from the Southern perspective, but you have those moments where they're saying, yeah, you know, slavery probably shouldn't be around, but then it just turns into bad guys versus good guys, and the good guy wins and gets the girl. It, where it could have actually di- dove into this a little, a little deeper. I mean, two years later, Michael Curtiz directs Casablanca, and, and I think Casablanca is a great example of what some of the themes from that you could have used in this without even selling out the whole fact that you're telling a story pre-Civil War from the South's perspective. You could use some of that and just the perspective that it gives there in this, and it doesn't. Yeah, I don't really... Yeah, and, you know, I, <laughs> I, think, I think... Obviously. I think it's absolutely valid to, talk, to say that a movie can come from a perspective of the the loser right or you know the 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 wrong side so to speak um i think actually the majority of civil war movies are coming from the perspective of the south it's actually i can't really think of that many movies that are unabashedly pro-union in in the way that that they uh, portray the civil war i think my problem more with this movie besides its i think rampant historical inaccuracies is just the message that the slaves in this movie uh, had no interest in actually being free they just uh, they don't know what to do when they're free they're not given any sort of act active um, activity in this movie they're just kind of tokenized the john brown character is not someone who's motivated by all ideology he's just an outside agitator we never really get a sense of why uh he believes that uh slavery is, is an inherent wrong and i i, I agree that john brown is a, is a historically complex figure and i could even see what terry is saying is that he deserves maybe a a, a uh introspective um look at you know uh the the does the meet does the ends really justify the means but this movie is just so unabashedly pro-south in its uh world view that i think it's just kind of hanging and um, it doesn't really give again any agency, any kind of perspective, any kind of valid perspective to the notion that hey, maybe slavery was an inherent wrong, and maybe we needed some kind of radicalism to stop this institution. I mean, essentially, what Abraham Lincoln did, you know, five years later was what John Brown was doing, but on a much larger scale. So um, I just, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm morally appalled by this movie, and it doesn't really have any redeeming factors. Even though I, I, I get what Todd's saying about the, you know, Michael Curtiz is obviously a competent director, but. Um, if you can't, if you if you're only looking at the movie for its aesthetics and not what it's not the ideas it's t- trying to promote, um, I think it's just sort of the wrong way about going um, about looking at these old movies. Yeah, it, it kind of felt like I mean when it came down to it, it, it was like it it used the the army soldiers and John Brown almost in like a cowboys versus Indians type of way. Very much of, so. of those old westerns. And, and but the way it was set up and with the context of the story it was telling um, I was hoping it would go in a direction almost of like a like a dances with wolves in telling a cowboys versus Indian story 
of, yes, you have these two sides that are supposed to be against each other, but let's actually see the merits in both sides instead and and look at the, the nuance of what that relationship could be instead of just turning it into uh, Cowboys versus Indians, Soldiers versus John Brown, um, you know, good good versus evil type of type of deal. That's my that was my biggest problem. Well, with see, it. like reading the description of the movie, I thought it was a war movie. I had no idea it was going to be like a western, and I actually kind of found that refreshing. I mean, I was kind of shocked that John Wayne was not in the movie somewhere because it seemed like a John Wayne movie. Should have been. <laughs> yeah, he, this was a perfect John Wayne movie. Actually, this is really like the John Wayne worldview movie or the Ronald Reagan worldview movie. Um, I don't know. I just look. I mean, we're in a lot of discussion right now about so-called cancel culture, right? And the notion of maybe we shouldn't be talking about Gone with the Wind anymore, and maybe we should just pretend that these movies never existed in the first place. And I think that's a very kind of problematic attitude um, in a lot of ways, because I think it is really important to talk about these issues. Um, and Gone with the Wind is a, I think, a, a great sort of intervention to talk about what is problematic about the Civil War and depictions of the Civil War. This movie has no depth. There's no contrast and its ideology. There's no like, well, let's actually look at John Brown and let's actually look at these characters in a rounded, complex way. They are, like you're sort of saying, Terry, they are very much reduced to just kind of Western uh, archetypes and they're not really painted in any sort of sophisticated strokes and um, it's just unfortunate. And if you're looking for a movie that deals with the complexities of the Civil War from this era, watch Gone with the Wind because as much as we want to cancel it and it must, as, as problematic as it is, it is way more sophisticated, way more advanced and I think way more well, relevant than this movie is. It's been a long time since we've had like that big a gap between what all three of us think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I side I side much closer to Zach. I just enjoyed parts of the movie. Your rating's closer to mine though. It's true. It's true. Well, Zach, did you did you end up giving it what half star? A half star because I do think it it it, it, it is a cause for a reflection. Now, Jude Seuss, which is my worst film of 1940, which is Nazi propaganda, uh, there's no reflection in it. It is just um, gar- total Nazi propaganda garbage. But I do think if you watch this movie, it makes you think of how terrible it is, and it makes you actually look at good, valid sources that look at the history of the Civil War in bleeding Kansas. Um. Yeah, and I, that's one thing I, I will say. I was I was kind of surprised going to your historical inaccuracy, of how it didn't even mention the back and forth between the South and North on the debate over what to do with Kansas and how they were fighting with each other. Like you said, the the destruction of Lawrence wasn't mentioned. All that was mentioned was how John Brown was doing things. Um, yeah, I just it it was it was interesting just how how inaccurate it was and how I think it's I think it it's was. a red flag when you show George Custer marrying Jefferson Davis's daughter. I feel like when when you get to that point you might want to question the historical accuracy of, of the movie you're watching. But what do I know? Well and see I even thought so Jefferson Davis shows up early on too and I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Now how now how is how is this going to come back up later on in since you were obviously looking at, you know, the president of the confederacy who turns out to be one of the biggest villains of the civil war and then you also have robert e lee there nope that just nope <laughs> no significance at all just just showing up <laughs> all right anyways so uh, it, it's it's easily available we we got it on prime video it's available on a lot of other streaming services sadly too. sadly uh, if you if you want to check this out um 
Yeah. 80th anniversary. Olivia de Havilland's in like five minutes of it. Yet his second build. Um, she's awesome. I will say that. She's awesome in everything she's in. It was great to see her in kind of like a confident role. Where her role in uh, in Gone with the Wind is so so meek and mild that uh, it was it was good to see see a different side of her there. I think this is only the second Olivia de Havilland film I've ever seen, so I need to watch some more. Okay, well let's get into uh, uh, another discussion that's going to be a whole lot of fun here. Uh, our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. Todd, you won our game last time, and you have chosen our list for uh, for this podcast. What are we doing? So, I, I mean, it was pretty much inspired by uh, still lingering effects of Uncut Gems uh, podcast. So we are doing uh, the top five movie death scenes of the 2010s and you could kind of take that a lot of ways i think it's going to be an interesting conversation uh, I'm, I'm curious of uh how much overlap we have i'm thinking not very much because uh it pretty much is going to be what the like movies that we love and the, the effect that they, they were left on us or just like entertaining stuff i don't know it's gonna be interesting yeah i thought this one was gonna be kind of hard to do and then as i was going through like all the different options like oh man there are so many great options here and uh and so yeah all right i'm gonna go first uh let's see here my number five. Oh yeah and there's so going I, to be spoilers I, I looked at it like by nature but right oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> just, yeah probably, just throw that out spoilers. there spoiler alert on a lot of these things um on every single one of them uh yeah so i was looking just like you have you have death scenes i was also thinking like cool deaths like just like awesome like just like moments in the movie things like that um so my number five i i felt like i had to put you know something tarantino on my list because you know like 80 percent of the characters tarantino makes die in his movies so um i had to put somebody on here and i think that's the movie that he did in the last decade that um that has the best moments like surrounding death scenes is Django Unchained. So I'm going with, it was it was more of a question of who from Django Unchained, not not if I was going to put it on. I'm going with Dr. King Schultz, uh, played by Christoph Waltz. Um, it, he he's got he's got the moment. He's got the you know the kind of a little monologue before he goes in the in the shootout. But you could you could easily go with Calvin Candy. You could easily go with the Samuel Jackson character in there as well. Um, Hell, you could go with Tarantino getting blown up as an Aussie slave trader in the middle of a in the middle of a field somewhere. Um, but there's there's so many great great death scenes in in this movie. But I think the coolest one comes from possibly the one of the cooler like most chill characters that that Tarantino came up with in the decade, and that's Dr. King Schultz, played by Christoph Waltz. So that's my number five. The solid pick. Yeah, and his 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 death. If I I haven't watched it in a while, but I remember being pretty surprised at his death. It kind of, if I remember correctly, is fairly shocking and jarring. Has definitely an impact on the rest of the movie. Yeah, it's it's something you do not expect, because I mean he he's like the main character. Like he's even more of a main character than Django at that point, 
and and then he goes down and says, oh, what is going on now? <laughs> What's going to happen? And, uh, yeah. All right, so that's my number five. Zach, you're next. Okay, number five. That's, a, that's a good way to start. So I looked at, I had four, basically, criteria for death scenes. Uh, was it a character who was important to the movie? Was there some shock value with the way that the death was portrayed? Because you can't just have any normal death. It needs to be like a noteworthy way to die. Um, what's the impact on the rest of the movie after the character dies? And then what's the method of death? Uh, you know, just a normal uh, gunshot to the head. Uh, not, not, not particularly interesting. We want to get like in the, in the unique and, and uh, varied range. Um, although I will say my number five pick actually is a gunshot to the head, so maybe I shouldn't say that. Um, my number five pick is actually a sort of a tie. I, I meant it to be one character, but actually rewatching the scene today, it's actually two characters who die in the scene, two fairly char- important characters who die in the scene, and that is Ben Foster as Tanner and Gil Birmingham as Berto in Hell or High Water, which is one of my favorite mm. underrated movies of the decade. Um, to set up the death, you know, w- what I love about this death is that Ben Foster has split from Chris Pine at the at this point in the movie. He, is, he has sacrificed himself for his brother. So instead of just going out, you know, easy with the police you know taking him out he wants to do it in spectacular methods right he goes up on the clip cliff he is uh lighting the kerosene tank and letting the car slide back to the police cars and having a huge explosion he is on the top of the cliff firing his rifle at the police it is a spectacular scene and he actually in the process kills jeff bridges partner which is why i had to include him also um but his death is is a tragic death because he knows he's going to die when he goes up that mountain and through the the movie we've been watching him we've been sympathizing with him He's not a bad man. They have to do these robberies to keep the house, to save the family. Um, but you know what? If you're going to go out, you might as well go out with, with you know, a, a spectacle, right? It's better to uh, flame out than to fade away, as, as a great uh, musician once said. And uh, Ben Foster, you know, is awesome in this movie. So I think it's a solid number five pick, Ben Foster, in Hell or High Water. All right. I like it. Uh, that's a great pick. That's a great pick. I mean, whenever you can mention Ben Foster, it's good, good times. He's died in a lot of movies, I feel like. Yeah. Todd. My number five is Jack in the house that Jack built. Because yes! I, in the movie, I was thinking it, about it's that. about a serial killer. You could I could have chosen a lot of characters, but like his death, uh, his trek down to the abyss with Verge is haunting and <laughs> just bewildering and stunning and it's his own ego that eventually makes him fall because he uh, doesn't follow the the directions. And it is that scene that it has that movie forever ingrained in my head and why it's one of the best movies of the decade. Uh, there's a, yeah, Like I said, there's a lot of de- uh, like really, really terrifying death scenes uh, throughout that movie, but it's, it, is, it is Jack's eventual demise that, uh, that makes it what it is. Now, as crazy as this sounds, I was actually thinking about that scene, putting it on my list. Uh, maybe not quite on my list, but here's my problem with it. Is it really a death scene or is it a scene in the afterlife? I think those are different things because we don't, I don't really remember him actually being seen dying uh, in the movie. That is true. I mean, but, I mean, it, that, that's just, it just kind of cuts off reality at, at some point, I, I guess. I don't know. It... <laughs> And and that is and why we totally spoiled this movie for Taylor, Terry now. Oh yeah, but I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I stopped listening quite a while ago. <laughs> you what? Probably a good idea. I stopped listening oh. quite a while ago. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, number four for me, 
so yeah, I I tried to like have like categories here for for each of the pick and representation of something. Um, so number four is uh, possibly the greatest what the hell moment of involving a death scene in a movie of this decade. And that is the death of Desi Collings, played by Neil Patrick Harris in mm-hmm. Gone Girl. Good pick. Uh, man, that that moment. I mean, you've got you've got amazing Amy, you know, manipulating everything, and you're realizing just how much she's manipulating everything. And then just in the middle of a bedroom scene, the the amount of blo- blood everywhere. <laughs> And it's just that moment, like, I don't know if my draw has dropped that far in the middle of a movie theater before when in a moment like that. It it was just, like, this jolt to your system of, like, holy crap, what just happened? And how crazy is this woman, actually? So, um, yeah, that's, like, the greatest, like, what-the-hell moment in, in involving a death scene in the movie. So, yeah. Desi Collings, Gone Girl number four. That's a good one. That's solid. Yeah, right, Zach. Yeah, I like I like the criterion of also you know if you were in a movie theater, what the audience's reaction was, and I do remember in that movie people were like, "Oh my gosh, wow!" Also, it's the fact that it's Neil Patrick Harris. I think adds some sort of value. I'm not sure what value it adds, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going. My number four also is very much in the category of. Oh my God! When when the audience was watching it, now maybe rewatching the movie, it's kind of inevitable that this character would see his demise, especially since it is a suicide death. But when people saw this movie, it was shocking, and that is Bradley Cooper as Jackson Maine in A Star Is Born. We're definitely getting into spoiler territory here. Um, there were only uh, a couple movies this decade when I could actually see people weeping at the movie theater. And at the end of this movie, when Bradley Cooper outs himself in his garage with his dog on the outside, looking in after his big steak dinner, um, it is it was total devastation. And, you know, um, I rewatched the scene also today and it cuts back and forth between Lady Gaga's final performance in that movie and or one of her final performances and the garage and the silence of it. And it is so quiet. And I remember being in the movie theater. It's just total quiet. Um, I, I love the sound uh, in, in, in that movie. And um, it's it's a tragic death scene that I guess is somewhat uh, inevitable, but um, it's a it's a great death scene. We don't even really see it so much in like close up graphic detail, but uh, it, it is tragic nonetheless. It has a visceral effect on the rest of the movie, and uh, it's my number four pick. That's a great pick. That's a great pick. I, I was considering that one too. I, I mean, I don't know how shocking something can be when you know it's the fourth time that the story's been told, but that's true. I... <laughs> And what makes it all the more sad is because he's just kind of come out of rehab and he goes off the wagon again, gets drunk, and, and he's been told by Lady Gaga's manager, I believe, that yeah, he's a toxic influence in her life. I believe when we reviewed this movie, Todd had a flaw involving the dog. Uh, like, do you remember that, Todd? I, yeah. I was always amused by, by your flaw it's, in that it's scene. It's because in that, in that scene, I felt more bad for the dog than I did, of, like, devastation over, like, him dying. Because <laughs> the dog. So I'm guessing this will. I'm guessing Bradley Cooper will not be on your top five list if you felt more bad for the dog after his big steak dinner. Yeah, that, that, that's a fair a fair guess. 
Also, can we go like possible all-time biggest douchebag Lady Gaga's manager in that movie? Yes. I mean, he's the I reason. Mean, basically, he's the reason. Basically, Bradley telling Cooper him to suicide. commit suicide. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. All right, Todd, number four. Okay, well, I, I forgot to say I, what I how I made my list is I went through every each year of the decade and I came up with the best or my, my death scene for that year. So I will not have any years repeating, and uh, all the other years will be on the, my honorable mention. So my number four comes from 2012. It is uh, an end of watch. It is the death of Mike Zavala, and it, it is a heartbreaking scene because it, it's about these these two guys that, that, that are uh, cops in L.A., and they absolutely love their job. Like, they live for that shit. They, they're, they do the... And things get crazy. They like are uncovering this like cartel cover up thing, and they get ambushed. And he's not the one that initially gets shot, but he's the one that eventually gets executed while he's tending to his buddy by these like heartless assassins. It is a is a just a gut wrenching scene, and Michael Pena is incredible in that movie. And it it, it is a it ha- it definitely has a lingering effect uh, once you watch that. So that movie is literally the next movie on my DVD shelf that I need to watch that I haven't seen. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so it's so a thanks, good movie. Todd. Thanks for that. <laughs> I concur with Todd. It's a really good movie. I don't remember that scene as well as I should, but I remember really liking the movie. All right, uh, number three on my list. Um, I I tried as hard as I could to stay away from from franchises. But a couple of them had to slip in on onto my list, and this is possibly the, uh, the this is the spot on my list of like if you're gonna go, that's the way to go scene, and uh, and that's Luke Skywalker in the Last Jedi. Nice. Um, just the the whole the whole scenario around that of how he he Jedi projects himself into this this great battle. Um, with Kylo Ren um, on the salt field there, and, and it, it's just such a cool thing. And then to find out that he was never actually there, but in doing that, he uh, he you know gave up so much of his energy that he ends up passing. But he passes in a way that he disappears, which is kind of the Jedi way of saying his work is done, and so he he just leaves. It was it's it's just that great moment of you know if you're gonna go. That's the way to go, and I mean, I, it, it might be one of the more significant deaths because the death of Luke Skywalker in the Last Jedi kind of killed the rise of Skywalker because J.J. Abrams didn't know what to do without Luke in it. So um, there's whole, that whole thing too. I mean, you have no more Skywalkers left, and then you name your last movie the Rise of Skywalker. I mean, it was kind of doomed from the start. So uh, so Luke Skywalker dying at the end of Last Jedi, killing off really Star Wars in general. That's number three on my list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that was definitely considered for my list as well i don't know i think there are better better deaths in the recent star wars franchise installments that i would have picked but uh it's it's a valid pick i mean and if you're gonna go for for like the what the hell moment that's obviously general snoke i mean that's the what the hell moment in in star in, in last jedi i mean the best moments are in last jedi of the new trilogy so i completely disagree but Okay. Wow. Okay. Zach, number three. Uh, okay, so um, this was also my sort of token franchise pick. Um, I went with uh, 
a death that was pretty devastating when you watched it in the movie theater, still devastating today to, to watch, and that is the death of Rue, played by Amanda Sternberg in uh, The Hunger Games, and, you know, a very tragic death. Um, I think what's so great about the death, though, is that it kind of elevates the movie from being the kind of, you know, YA dystopian adaptation of the novels into actually a really powerful piece about, uh, you know, dystopian governments, and what's cool about the scene, too, is that, you know, it's a great emotional performance by both uh, Stenberg and uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Um, but it also shows the reaction of the district that she's from. Because when Katniss uh, gets up and has laid the flowers on Rue's dead body, she gives the District 11 sign. And then there's mass chaos and uprising in District 11. And I believe, if I'm correct, those scenes were actually directed by Steven Soderbergh. Um, but it's a really powerful moment in the movie that kind of shows the shift in the Katniss character. Um, and it's a really... Uh, it, it reminds you that even though there are some lighthearted scenes in The Hunger Games, it shows you the gravity that all the death has on, on these characters, especially when um, you get to kind of know them and know how tragic it is because they're so young and Rue is like like 10 years old in that movie. So it's a great scene, still works every time, and it actually comes up a lot in the rest of the movie and, and its sequels. So it's probably the most, maybe arguably the most important scene in the entire franchise. That's a good one. That's a good call. I hadn't thought of that one, but that, that's a good call. All right, Todd. Uh, my number three comes from 2014. It's for the move from the movie Creep, and it is uh, the death of Aaron. Uh, Creep is this like really cool low budget horror movie starring Mark Duplass as this guy who lures uh, a, a guy to his cabin in order to make like a video documentary, video diary, some some sort for him. And it's a really eerie found footage kind of kind of feel, but uh, it eventually leads to this part where. Uh, they're going to meet in a park, and it, it is completely thwarted by uh, by Yosef sneaking up behind him in the park before they even talk and taking an axe to the back of his head. And it is the it is the weirdest, shocking death that I that I can remember in the last decade because I it was not expected at all, and it was so it, everything was so quiet and eerie leading up to it, and then all of a sudden, boom. It, it was it, and it, the movie actually spawned a sequel which is equally good or in a lot of ways it's a better movie but like that death scene like is 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 crazy todd have you picked a movie i've seen yet apparently not <laughs> if you haven't seen creep no I, I i yeah so you you did the house that jack built and then you did end of watch uh then you did end of watch and then yeah and then creep so no you haven't picked one i've seen yet does anyone die in grass is greener because that was the other obscure movie you had on your last power ranking. Well, what movie? Is that going to be on your list? Grass is greener. Oh. <laughs> greener grass. No. Uh, greener no, grass. Excuse me. <laughs> I, I have not seen Creep either, but I I believe what you say. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would. I I don't know. That would have made it even harder to come up with a list if I was looking to make sure we had all seen all the movies. I mean, you're welcome to you're welcome to choose whatever you want. We, you're just not going to generate a lot of reaction from us. We're, you know, yeah, creep. That was a great death scene. Right on, man. <laughs> All right, number two on my list uh, is probably the best death scene of the last decade, um, and I can't say a specific character because part of what makes it such an amazing scene is the body count of the scene i think is like four four or five it's the party scene from parasite mm. um like like if you're talking just like death scene just the 
the shock value, the the brilliance of how it's all put together, um, of how the entire story kind of all bubbles up to this one moment where you have multiple characters just kind of finally the you know the straw breaks. It is it is such a remarkable scene. Again, one of those just jaw-dropping scenes. And, I mean, you have so many different characters all all ending up dead in such a random way, in such a crazy moment that you don't expect. Um, so, yeah, like, for in terms of, like, death scene, I think that might be the best of the best of the decade there. So, yeah, number two death scene is, yeah, the party scene from Parasite. I like your interpret respect. I like your interpretation <laughs> of the actual phrase "death scene" because you're right; it's not one death, but it is a scene of death. Yeah, and that's what makes it so great. <laughs> like I could have picked one character, but the, by picking one character, you're cheapening what makes that scene so great. That is an outstanding like pick. Um, okay, I have a, a random tangent question. Do you think it is more tragic in a movie? In a movie death scene, when the character knows they're about to die, or when it's completely unexpected? Is it more mm. tragic? Like, uh, yeah, or like, just, you know, emotionally uh, triggering. I, I don't know. When they know they're gonna die. But they uh, and when they know they're gonna die, and they do it, and they they walk. But into the end it. of Uncut right. Gems, like that. I mean, I that that is as affecting as any. As any death scene I've ever seen. And you have no idea he's going Okay, to. well... Okay, I, I'm just going to go... With my, okay, so my my top two were always going to be my my top two. One of them has a character who knows they're going to die. The other one does not. And uh, because of what Todd just said... I, I don't know, I was hoping you guys would give me more guidance, but whatever. Uh, I'm going to go number two, Adam Sandler at the end of Uncut Gems. Because when Todd first announced this list, it was the first death I thought of. It was an incredibly shocking death when I remember being in theater, people audibly gasped. I think I was one of them. Um, but is it really a death scene? I mean, yes, he dies, but it's also the climax of the movie. It's also the final scene of the movie, and there's a lot of other shit happening in the scene. So the reason why it couldn't quite be my number one, besides the fact that it would be utterly predictable if it was, is that it's not just solely focused on his death. That being said, it's probably the most effective scene of death and the most surprising and unexpected scene of a character's death that I've ever seen in a movie. And yet, also tragically inevitable. You could see it from the beginning of the movie. Yeah, inevitable yet shocking at the same time. And that is a testament to the genius of that movie. Inevitable but shocking. I don't know how many other movies you could say that about. Yeah, that's a good call. I, I, I'll, I'll say right now, that is not on my list since we just talked about it. I wanted to look at other stuff. Yeah, since it was the motivation for me making the list, I left it off mine as well. But, I mean, otherwise, I mean, I, I, it's to be hard to have anything above it. Right. That's fair. All right, Todd, number two. My number two comes from 2010. It is the, from The Town, and it is Jeremy Renner's character of James Coughlin. Uh... I, I've seen that one. I understand that reference. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, so they, they just pull off their Fenway heist, and he's about, he's getting away with the money, uh, dressed up like a cop, 
and he's made by the FBI agent, and then there's this, like, massive shootout in the middle of the street, and then he get, he ends up getting clipped, and, then, and like, struggling behind, like, some mailbox or something, and he sits there for, like, a, a good couple of minutes, he drinks, like, some drink that's, like, sitting next to him, and then he decides he's gonna go out, like, the way that he probably views as most honorable. He gets up, and he starts shooting at the cops, and they all, like, take him out. It's It's a really tense scene probably the best scene that ben affleck ever directed and uh jeremy renner's character is a badass and i can't imagine a better way for him to go out than guns blazing in the middle of the street it's a it's an awesome scene i need to watch that movie again it's been too long i don't remember much about it it's it's been it's been on like cable a lot recently i i, I cut a bunch of it all right number one time number one on my list uh, I had to go back to a franchise. Um, one of the things that uh, that can make a death uh, powerful and poignant is um, investment in the character. And um, that's one thing that a franchise will do for you is over a multitude of movies, it, uh, it, gives, it helps you understand the character, learn the character, love the character. So when the death scene comes about, it's that much more powerful. Um, no, I'm not talking about Tony Stark. Number one on my list is Logan from Logan, um, which, uh, is, I mean, it, his best turn as Logan, Hugh Jackman is in this movie, um, playing it for the last time. I think it was the ninth or 10th movie he had done as this character over an 18 year period. Um, and just seeing him as this old, broken-down version of himself, and then um, having this moment where he sacrifices himself for uh, for his, you know, the the future of of a of a girl that is basically turned into a daughter for him uh, is just so powerful. That final scene is just perfect in that movie so uh and and i i love the x-men series and i and i love hugh jackman's role in that it's by far his best role he's ever had and which is one of the great parts about him doing it so many times um it was one of the first ones i thought of i could have easily said number one logan number two tony stark but i didn't because i feel like they're kind of the same category and logan was better than tony stark and how how that scene played out and uh and the power of it. So, yeah, number one, Logan and Logan. I like it. Yeah, I thought it was going to. I thought your number one was going to be Tony Stark. So this was a nice, uh, refer, nice, nice, unpredictable turn that your list is taking. Well, the the whole premise of like introducing it, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I could be describing either one of them, but I'm not. <laughs> it's true. And Logan was the much better death scene, in my opinion. It, it was, and, and the better, I think the better character even, too. I mean, the, the character arc that he has over all those films is just awesome. It's such a great performance. Um, I mean, I, I love Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark, but in a lot of ways you could say he's kind of playing himself in playing Tony Stark, where, I mean, you see Hugh Jackman in anything else, and you know just how much he is having to go outside the box to be Logan, and yet completely embodies him, too. It's a good call. All right. Zach, number one. 
All right, so I said my number two pick was someone who uh, has no idea death is coming for them. My number one pick is someone who tragically is very aware that death is uh, coming and is very close. And uh, again, it's a movie that when Todd made the announcement, told us what this list was going to be, it was, it was one of the first films I thought of because it was not only a shocking death, not only an unusual death in a lot of ways, but also a really impactful death on the rest of the movie. It's also not a death that occurs at the end of the movie, which I think is somewhat unusual. I think most of the deaths we've talked about on these lists have been at the end of the movies. Um, this is the death of Ryan Gosling as Luke in The Place Beyond the Pines, a movie that uh, would have been my number one of the decade had it ended with Ryan Gosling's death, because I think for the first 55 minutes of that movie, I'm not sure if there's ever been a better movie than the first 55 minutes of that movie, but I, I, I don't... I don't know if I've ever seen a movie that really just captured me. And, uh, you know, there's scenes where he's riding the motorcycle and I, literally you feel like you're on the motorcycle when you're watching uh, that movie. He's a bank robber in the movie and he, um, you know, I think he has sort of a death wish a little bit and uh, he gets caught in a pretty sticky situation when he defies the advice of Ben Mendelsohn and goes for one last score, but the police find him, of course, right away and he goes into this house and uh he knows he's gonna die that's that was the thing that really stuck out to me when i was re-watching it today which is that uh he knows he's gonna die so he calls up ava mendez on his phone on their phone and he says i think one of the most tragic things i've ever heard a movie character say which is uh not you know tell my son i love him what he instructs eva mendez the mother of his child to say is don't tell my son about me for don't tell him anything about me which is i think infinitely more tragic than saying i love you and then uh, he's shot in a very unique way and flies out the window um the rest of the movie not so great very kind of um mediocre sort of standard stuff but that that first 55 minutes is extraordinary and that death scene is extraordinary too and uh it's hard to think of anything uh ever topping that that's an awesome call i mean i i love the whole nice. movie as you know but like yeah that 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 is that is a great death scene and that yeah completely tragic and shocking and, but at the same time he, yeah oh yeah that's a great choice i didn't even i didn't even think of that that's a good one that's a good one all right todd number one Okay, so my number one, similar to Terry's pick of Parasite, it is a, a scene that is not one death, but several deaths, and it also came from last year. It is the deaths of Tex, Sadie, and Katie in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because <laughs> that whole yes. scene of the Manson family rolling up on Rick's house, and they run into Cliff and his pit bull, Brandy, and then, like, just, like, the most creative deaths that Tarantino has put together since Kill Bill, like, one of them gets a dog food can to the forehead, Another one gets attacked by the dog, and the other one gets torched by a flamethrower from a movie that the, the character was in while he's, like, drunk on his ass in the pool, like, drinking 14 margaritas. Fourteen fists of McCluskey. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it, 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 it's hilarious, it's shocking, and it's exactly the reason why we need cinema back, because, like, I remember watching that movie in the theater, the crowd was roaring, and, I mean, it, it's... It, it was uh, it was probably the, one of the most memorable times that I, that I've had at the movies in a long time. It it had to be my number one when I uh, disqualified Uncut Gems. Like once upon a time in Hollywood, the end of that movie is. Uh, that, I mean, that's as good as movies get. Yeah, that's definitely one of my honorable mentions. That uh, I mean, but like I said, you it's almost like you have to have Tarantino represented on your list somewhere. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking. I mean, there's several options in the Hateful Eight too that I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, let's go into honorable mentions. Um, the one that just missed my list is actually another one from last year. Um, Jimmy Hoffa and the Irishman. That's just missed one. my list. Yeah. Um. Uh, so then I have some other ones here. I've got uh, Irina played by uh, Saoirse Ronan in The Way Back. Uh, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise in Edge of Tomorrow. Um, and you could also say Jake Gyllenhaal, however many times he dies in Source Code. You could throw yes. that in there too. Um, Mark Ruffalo in Foxcatcher. Uh, George Clooney in Gravity. Oh, good um, one. Yeah, that, that's, that. that's such a powerful scene. Um, Michael Keaton in Birdman, or does he? I mean, that that's kind of a, an interesting moment there. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence in Mother uh, is is I mean, what think what you want? It's a powerful powerful ending. Um, and then uh, of course you got to go with uh, the Seven Evil Exes in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. And last but not least, Alice and Janney and Margaret. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach. Honorable mentions. I also said Allison, Janney, and Margaret. I also, <laughs> said, I also said every time Tom Cruise dies in Edge of Tomorrow slash Live Die Repeat. Good calls, Terry. <laughs> yes. Um, I also said um, Marion Cotillard in Inception. Uh, Z- oh. Zula and Victor at the end of Cold War, the main couple. That's a huge spoiler if you haven't seen that movie. Sorry, Terry. Haven't um, seen it. Thanks. Yeah, sorry. And uh, uh, Harvey Scrimshaw as Caleb, the son in The Witch, which, by the way, is the best child death scene, um, not named Rue, in any movie this decade. I also had the death of the salesman in The Salesman. I had Adam Driver in Silence. I had the dude at the end of The Tribe. I don't really remember who the character is, but Todd, you know, because you recently rewatched it. I mean, that guy got beaten to a pulp, man. That was a graphic, brutal death. Probably one of the most brutal deaths I've ever yeah, seen true. in a movie. Um, Joseph Gordon-Lovett and Bruce Willis in Looper, because when Joseph Gordon-Lovett dies, Bruce Willis also dies because they're the same person. And uh, finally, the death of the United States in Fahrenheit 11.9. Nice. So I had, had to throw that one in there. <clears throat> yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Todd. I'll All right. So the best child death and also another death from mother is the death of the baby in mother. That was my best death of 2017. Uh, 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 I, that, that's the most disturbing death yeah. potentially. I also had um, mm-hmm. Adam Driver in silence. That was my best death of 2016. My best of, best of 2015 was Oscar Isaac's death in Ex Machina. 2013 was yeah. uh, James Franco's alien dying in Spring Breakers, like right before this like epic scene, like he gets like off like right at the beginning. It's kind of awesome. My best death of 2011 was Robert the Tire in Rubber, um, and I also had a few others that uh, Charlie the the daughter getting decapitated in uh, Hereditary, Michael Sarah getting impaled by a light post in This Is the End, and of course The Rock and Samuel Jackson. Aiming for the bushes and the other guys. Also, the, probably the second biggest crowd reaction of any death scene uh, of the last decade that I saw. Is it bad that I haven't seen the other guys yet? I haven't either. It's probably bad that you haven't seen that. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it's a Will Ferrell comedy. I thought you saw all of those, Terry. I usually do. However, so, at one point this last week, I did rewatch the... Uh, the uh, Oscars song that inspired the other guys to happen. 
where uh, Will Ferrell and Jack Black and John C. Riley singing about uh, how the Oscars ignores comedians. Nice. So, Todd, do you, like, actually have a best death of each year? Is that, like, a category you do? Well, no, I, I, that's what I did to make the list. I, can't, I came up with my okay, best death for each year. And then those last three were just ones that I was just like, eh, screw it. I gotta throw these in there, too. I think we should add the best death of each year to our end-of-the-year top ten list. Like, I like that idea. You know, just throw it in there. Along with our top tens, the best movie death of each year. We can do that. I'm in. I like that. We guys, we'll have to remember that in uh, in five months, but... Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Alright, well, uh, well, let's uh, let's see if, what, how we do on our game. Let's see how we do guessing Adam's list. Uh, so, yeah, Adam sent us his list. Yes, this is the host of the new segment, Daily Notes. Again, listen to it. It came out on Friday. Um, all right, so here's my list. Here's the best part about my, my list of five guessing for Adam is none of these appeared on anybody's list or honorable mentions. So uh, I, I think that's pretty cool and might bode badly for me. So uh, number five is uh, Harry Potter slash Voldemort uh, in Deathly Hallows Part 2. Uh, number four is M from Skyfall. Uh, number three, Tony Stark, Avengers Endgame. Number two, Oscar Grant in Fruitvale Station. And number one, Bing Bong from Inside Out. Mm. Solid guesses. All right, Zach. All right, my number five in honor of Adam's um, recent podcast is John Soap McCavish at the end of Call of Duty. I don't know who that is, but I just thought I'd throw that on there. Number four is Bing Bong in Inside Out. Number three, the John Krasinski character in A Quiet Place. Number two, Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man in Avengers Endgame. And number one, Han Solo in Star Wars The Force Awakens. All right, I, I had number five, Calvin Candy in Django Unchained. Number four, Han Solo in The Force Awakens. Number three, Oscar Grant in Fruitvale Station. Number two, Shannon in Drive. And number one, everyone in Avengers Infinity War. Oh, you're, so you're going with the snap. Yeah. Okay. All right. So here is uh, here is uh, his list. He starts off by saying, "Spoiler warning." Well, yeah. No, no, duh, dude. Okay. <laughs> Honorable mentions. You don't get a lot of duh. Honorable no mentions. Duh That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bring it back. I censored myself. <laughs> Honorable mentions: uh, High Smith and Danson, Samuel Jackson, Dwayne Johnson, and the other guys. Um, Jason Todd, a.k.a. Robin, in Batman Under the Red Hood. Animated Batman made his honorable mention. That's good. Uh, John Wick's dog in John Wick. Uh, the flamethrower death in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, the ending kill in Creep. Nice. Uh, the ending in Buried. Uh, Father James in Calvary. Brendan Gleeson. Uh, Logan and Logan. Uh, Yondu, Michael Rooker in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, uh, the the Atlanta Braves in the 2019 NLDS Game Five. Ouch. Yes. <laughs> wow. Uh, King Joffrey, Game of Thrones, and Cats. Just cats. Clearly not listening to the film uh, requirement for this list. Well, yeah. your prediction was that it wasn't going to as well. <laughs> I think that says well, it was, something. It was honorable mention. It was honorable mention. All I think everything in his list is yeah. Everything here is actually on uh, yeah. All right, number five. 
Uh, accidental beheading, hereditary. The entire marketing campaign was around this little girl who clicks her tongue, then she dies halfway through. Having an allergic reaction, can't breathe, so you stick your head out the window and boom, your head's gone. What a shock. Number four. Thanks for the spoiler, Adam. I haven't seen Hereditary yet. Number four, the child murderer in Big Bad Wolves. Uh. Uh, the 2014 Israeli film about a brutal child murderer and the revenge we seek. The father and grandfather of the last victim, as well as a vigilante police detective, captured the recently released suspect and proceed to torture him in the exact way he kills his victims. The reason the child murderer's death is so powerful is as he slowly dies, he reveals he has captured the police detective's daughter and they will never find her. Roll credits. <laughs> wow. Yeah, okay. that's a good one. Uh, number three, number three, Jess played by Elle Fanning in The Neon Demon. Nice. Uh, I know Terry and Zach haven't seen this film yet, but this death slash kill was crazy. A movie symbolizing beauty, being skin deep, jealous models, murder our Jesse, and then proceed to eat her flesh and bath in her blood. The ending shot of a woman vomiting an eyeball is gross, disturbing, and brilliant. Still a must watch. Yeah, I don't think so after that. Oh, it's, a, it's um, an amazing movie. <laughs> it's a great call. <laughs> uh, number two, Bing Bong slash End of Childhood Imagination and Inside Out. Uh, this film came out at the perfect time for me. Our daughter was born a couple months prior, and this movie put on an emotional roller coaster. Um, you could hear every adult in the theater start to cry when Bing Bong sacrificed himself so Joy could save Riley. To this day, I will steer, I still tear up when you hear him say, take her to the moon for me. And number one, Neil Patrick Harris in Gone Girl. <laughs> wow. Going into the movie, I thought that Neil Patrick Harris or Tyler Perry could have been the killer. So imagine my surprise when the reveal happens. Not only is Rosamund Pike still alive, but she's crazy. <laughs> How she kills Neil Patrick Harris in this film was a true shock. I already have a hard time with throat slashing, so this one left an imprint in my head. Okay. Well, I got one, but his number one was on my list. Yeah, you both got Bing Bong. And that's like... And no one got anything else, not even in his honorable mention. Because he didn't even say... Once you guys said Han Solo, I'm like, dude, yeah, that, that should have been on his list. Um, and he always mentions Fruit Bell Station. So, <laughs> I know! <laughs> that's why I thought that was a great call. So so do, do, I, get, do I get the win here? Because I had, I had Bing Bong number one. He had it number two. Zach had it what four? Four. Yes. Yeah, and and his number one was on my list, which sometimes we use. Somehow as a he had like a ton of crossover with me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I know that creep. Yeah. Yeah. Creep. I think he went Terry. Hollywood and hereditary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if Todd had gotten just one right, he may have he may have taken it, but. Yeah, I think okay, I Okay, that is your 15th win, Terry. 15 to me having 21 and Zaka's 13 and a half. Okay. So I get to pick our uh, our power ranking for next time. Cool. All right. That was good. That was fun. Awesome. All right. Wow. Awesome. Wow. Todd to doesn't get that <laughs> reference. Uh, I'm glad we have Hamilton references. Okay, trivia time. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. It is uh, time to talk about all our trivia stuff, and we're starting with our trivia reviews. 
Uh, Zach won last time, which means Todd and I each had something to watch. Todd, what did you watch? Uh, I watched the 2014 movie Jay Hawkers by Kevin Wilmot. It is the story of Fog Allen, <laughs> the legendary coach of the Kansas Jayhawks, and he's like struggling to keep his job at the university because he's aging, and but he has a chance to leave with a bank by uh, recruiting this seven-footer from Pennsylvania named Wilton Chamberlain. Uh, he's played by former Jayhawk Justin Leslie, and he's probably the worst actor from an athlete that I have ever seen. Like, uh, he's an empty uniform. It's, I mean, he's way too reserved. I never thought that that guy was the ladies' man and the, the, the god on and off the court that Will Chamberlain was. Uh, Fog Allen, though, is played by this guy named Kip Niven, and he's awesome. He, he's like a, it's like watching Shelly Levine or something, like watching him recruiting and stuff. I, I honestly, I thought it was a documentary going in, so I was in for kind of a surprise. Uh, it, it kind of makes this story out to be parallel with the civil rights movement. Uh, and, uh, I don't know, it makes Will, like, reluctant, a reluctant role model and, like, uh, and shows, like, prejudice and stuff like that. It, I, I don't know, it's kind of like a glorified version of, of drunk history because in, in, like, how the stupidity of the dialogue and how it's shot and, like, the entire idea of the movie is, like, totally drunk history. I'm a huge fan of that show, but it's it takes, like, this niche story out of context and gives it, like, more cultural significance than it probably uh, deserved. I don't think colleges were even really, ha uh, like, ha getting recruiting violations at the time. But I actually think Kevin Wilmot is a better actor than he is a director. He's like a poor man's Wendell Pierce on screen. Like, I actually thought his performance was pretty interesting. But um, as a director, I mean, he just has, like, random-ass camera angles and stuff. His, the, the basketball scenes were, like, shot like silhouettes almost. It, it was really kind of odd. But uh, it, it looked cool, but I don't really think it fit the story. The score kind of sounded like it was from Sideways, which is weird. As a critic, it's kind of an awful movie. As a fan, I think it's actually kind of a great movie. So it's in the middle, and they lose to the heels at the end. So go heels. I give it two stars. <laughs> Had to have the shout-out to the Tar Heels. What do you think of the movie, Zach? Yeah. It's, that's an interesting question. I'm way too close to the making of this movie to have any sort of informed objective assessment. I know many of the actors in this movie, you know, the racist waitress I know, the little girl sitting in the movie theater who leaves with her family is actually a little girl who's in my class at the high school. Um, uh, the, the, the radio announce, the radio, the guy who owns the radio station is another, uh, you know, uh, film grad, film school grad, graduate like, like me. I was at the premiere of this movie. I was around when this movie is getting shot so i'm too close to it i know this movie too well i actually think it's kevin wilmot's best movie um i i i really like the story and you have to remember that kevin wilmot has no budget for these movies in fact much of his crew are students that are enrolled in his class so a lot of it is by non-professionals i will say for the life of me and i hope he's not listening i've never understood they got access to the allen field house i i will never understand why they couldn't have just gotten a thousand extras and just filled up the, the seats instead of shooting it in that high contrast low key light which just i think looks it they wanted it to look stylized but to me it just begs low budget movie where they couldn't find the extras to sit in the stands i i don't get that but i still think it's kevin wants best movie and i think it's really cool yeah i mean it's a really artsy decision and it looks cool but yeah i i, <laughs> I didn't understand that either but i i was Zach, i think you need to uh i think you need to interview kevin wilmot for the podcast like, like, do do an interview, talk to him about this, talk to him about 
you know, working with Spike Lee. Ask him that question that you just had. You know what's great about Kevin Wilmot is I will actually see him walking in Lawrence randomly. Like, that is what a legit person he is. He actually does live here, and he just hangs out and chills. I, he's he's awesome. He's a total inspiration. And um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll see. Uh, we need more glowing reviews of his movies, though. Not a tepid two-star review. We need, you know, Kevin Wilmot. Yeah, all the way. He needs to act in a Spike Lee movie. He was, he was really good in his, like, two scenes in this movie. He acts. He's acted, I believe, in all the movies he's directed as bit roles, kind of like that role in Jayhawkers. So he thinks he's Alfred Hitchcock. I, it, there's a little, yeah, a little bit of that. <laughs> or M Night Shyamalan. I mean, you could take your pick. <laughs> oh no, M Night Shyamalan made himself like the lead in one of his movies. So there's that. All right. Uh, so the movie I had to watch, I had, I was assigned uh, a classic that came up on, uh, on our podcast two weeks ago, uh, that was a glaring omission on my part that I had to watch. That is the 1966 film, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, George Siegel, Sandy Dennis, and that's it. Um, so, uh, this, this movie is, um... Uh, revolves around Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, this married couple, uh, George and Martha, who uh, are... Uh, he's a college professor. Uh, she is married to him and also the uh, daughter of the president. And um, George Siegel plays a new professor in town they invite over for drinks after a party. And um, and the the night happens as, as it happens. Uh, it's based on a play, which you can totally tell. Um... The, the, the tagline on the poster is like the perfect way to describe this movie. You are cordially invited to George and Martha's for an evening of fun and games. Like, that is the perfect way to describe this movie. Uh, this is also Mike Nichols' directorial debut. He had done a lot of stage stuff, but this was his first time behind the camera in a film. Uh, this film was amazing. Uh, the, you can tell... First off, you can tell it's it's a uh, it was based on a play because it's very claustrophobic. It's all kind of set in the same couple couple settings, um, and the dialogue is so good and it's so crisp and it's so biting in the way that it it talks about things and the creative way a lot of times it talks about things. It's so good. Uh, all four characters are really good. Um, the, my favorite was the one I'd never heard of before, and that's Sandy Dennis as uh, as George Siegel's wife. She is amazing in this movie, because she she can't handle her liquor and gets drunk early on, and her random comments and interjections throughout the entire thing are hilarious. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, you can tell that they've done a lot of movies together, and they, they have this insane chemistry um, in, in every scene that they're in, and... Uh, it's just it's just remarkable it's an amazing movie easy four stars uh yeah i it it's so good i i i want to watch it again because i feel like there's so much stuff i missed in it just because it's one of those movies that you know there there's so much going on the dialogue is so quick and um so witty that yeah you could watch this over and over and over again and get new stuff out of it yeah this movie's yeah like listening to you okay go ahead Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Todd. I was just going to say, listening to you, Terry, makes me think we should have just done a deep dive on this movie. I know Todd's a huge fan of this movie. I love this movie. It's one of my top 
top five movies of the 60s, I'd probably say. And uh, I think it, it has aged really well. It's still extremely relevant. It's still biting. And in many ways, it's still very shocking to watch because this movie got a lot of notoriety for its bad language. It was one of the first movies to like inspire um, eventually the rating system. Um, but it is a classic movie that has held up very well. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was... I was gonna say a lot of that. I mean, it that, that's where Mike Nichols at his best is like the the heavily dialogue driven movies, and yeah, it's one of the best movies ever made. I think it's in my top one hundred. It's yeah, it's a great great movie. So so this movie was a best picture nominee, and I I try and collect DVDs and Blu-rays of best picture nominees. So when I was assigned this, I decided let's see what it would take to get it, and so I I bought it as a part of a four a four-film collection of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. So I have three other movies that I need to Queen watch Patra. now. And so, uh, here, no, uh, The Sandpiper, The Comedians, and The VIPs. The VIPs, so, I've seen that. There it is. It's from TCM. It was like, I could buy, I could buy Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf for like 15 bucks, or I could buy all four for like eleven ninety nine. So uh, that made the decision easy. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, so... I can watch it again. All right. Well, those are the movies we're reviewing. Zach is hosting trivia. Zach, what are we doing? All right. So we're going to... So um, Olivia de Holloway died. And do uh, you know how old she was when she died? 104. 104. 104. I mean, that is pretty dang impressive. So um, I was going to... I wanted to do a list that uh, will test your knowledge about the age of various Oscar winners. But in honor of Olivia de Holloway... The lists are going to be the lists of the oldest ever Oscar winners in three different categories. So we're going to start with um, the top 10 oldest best directors in Academy history. And so these are the ages of the directors when they won their Oscars. And um, I think we're just going to get started with this list. And we're just going to start with you, Todd. Oldest directors in Oscar history when they won, the day they won their Oscar. Top 10 of all time. We'll go to you first, Todd. Uh, Clint Eastwood. Oh, and yeah, and, and say the name of the movie. Oh, Million Dollar Baby. That is correct, and that is number one. Clint Eastwood was 74 years old uh, when he won uh, in 2004. I'll go uh, Martin Scorsese for The Departed. Uh, believe it or not, Martin, uh, Martin Scorsese is on the list. He's number four. I'm sorry. I, I just saw him. Uh, he is number four. He was 64 years old. Yeah, you'd think he'd be on the list. He was pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. Back to you, Todd. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to say William Wyler for Ben-Hur. Uh, that's an interesting guess. He is not on this list. Uh, so Terry, you have a chance to rack up some points here. We're looking for old Oscar winning movie directors. William Wyler was not on the list, sadly. I don't know how old he was, but not that old, apparently. Okay. Um... I mean, I know he won four Oscars. I, I, that was the last one. I assume that he probably was pretty old. How about, uh, Roman Polanski for The Pianist? Roman Polanski is the number two oldest director, and he was 69 years old at the time of his win. Okay. Um, 
This is a lot harder than it sounds. <laughs> um, oh, there's got to be some some from back in the day. Oh, five, four. Cecil B. Three. DeMille. Cecil B. DeMille is not on this list. Okay. I don't think he ever won. Uh, but that's a good. That's a yeah. I don't. I don't know if he ever won either. Um. All right. Uh-huh. So that puts the score at two to one. Terry with the lead. We're gonna now move on to the oldest ever. Beth. Well, well, can we hear the rest of the list? Oh, sure, yeah, sure. No, uh, we got George Cukor for My Fair Lady, who was number three. Clint Eastwood was also number five, and I, I will, <laughs> I will remind you that that may occur again, where we may have repeat uh, winners. Wow. Um, Carol Reed for Oliver, Fred Zinnemann for A Man for All Seasons, Richard Attenborough for Gandhi, John Ford for The Quiet Man, and Ang Lee for Life of Pi. Uh, I almost said Richard Attenborough. Yes. Actually, um, let's go to Best Actresses. We'll change it up a little bit. So, the top ten oldest Best Actresses at the time of their win in Oscar history. Terry, we're going to start with you. Jessica Tandy for uh, Driving the Stage. Jessica Tandy is number one. She was 80 years old when she won. Catherine Hepburn on Golden Pond. Catherine Hepburn was number two for On Golden Pond, 74 years old. Meryl Streep, The Iron Lady. Meryl Streep is number four. 62 years old. Geraldine Page, Trip to Bountiful. That is number seven. She was 61 when she won. Um, she was number number seven and she was how old? She was uh, 61. Okay. Uh... It's interesting. Best actress always seems to go to. tends to skew younger, which makes this an interesting list. Um, uh, Julianne Moore for Still Alice? Julianne Moore for Still Alice is not on this list. Todd, oh. can you rack up a few points here? Um, well. Probably not. Um. Any guesses? Uh, five, four, three. Yeah, I got nothing. Two. All right. Well, um, there are actually some recent ones on this list, like uh, Frances McDormand, who is number the ninth oldest oh. best actress. We also have. Uh, Helen Mirren in The Queen, who was the sixth oh. oldest. Um, but you also forgot about uh, such luminaries as Shirley Booth in Comeback Little Sheba and Marie Dressler in Men and Bill, so I can't totally blame you. Uh, I will say, though, Catherine Hepburn appeared three times on this list, so remember, uh, you can't, there might be repeats. She was on for On Golden Pond as well as The Lion in Winter and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So the score. As wow. it currently stands, is Terry with a slim four to three lead going into our final category. Really quick, really quick. Yes. Who was who was uh, number ten? How old was was she? Uh, that was Shirley Booth for Comeback Little Sheba. She was only fifty four years old, so it is kind of surprising. You would... Yeah, Julianne Moore was fifty four also, so she must have been eleven. Yes, I would. Yes, yes, I. Because she had like must just have been turned fifty four. All right, so we are going on to our final category, which is Best Actor. 
And uh, we started with Terry in the last category. We're going to start with Todd in this category. Go for it, Todd. Uh, Henry Fonda on Golden Pond. Henry Fonda is the oldest person to ever win Best Actor. He was 76 years old when he won from his hospital bed. It almost sounded like you were going to say he, he's the oldest person ever, but I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay. Um, how old was Peter Finch? Or, uh, how old? No, I'm just going to go with it. Peter Finch and Network. Good guess, Terry. He is number six. He was 60 years old, although he had technically died by the time he won his Oscar, but he's still on this list. Uh, okay, John Wayne for True Grit. John Wayne is correct. He is the number two oldest actor to win Best Actor. 62 years old. Gary Oldman, Darkest Hour. Gary Oldman is number eight. 59 years old. 59, that's, okay. Uh, uh, Jack Nicholson for As Good As Gets. Jack Nicholson is number five. He was 60 years old. Amazing to think he was 60 years old that long ago. Wow. Yeah, that's insane. So we have five more to go in this category. And I will tell you, they're pretty spread out. A couple of them are recent. A couple of them are pretty old. Oh, should I go with that one? I don't know if he won. Lionel Barrymore and You Can't Take It With You. That's quite a guess. That is not correct, but I, oh. I appreciate the effort. Todd, you have... a good guess. You gotta admit good, that was a good guess. I, although I don't believe he won for, for that, but again, good guess. Todd, do you have any more guesses? I want to say Jeff Bridges... Crazy Heart. Is that your final oh, answer? One. I want to say it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that is your final answer, because if that's your final answer, that is correct. Which means that you win trivia by a score of 7-6. to six, Very close game. Todd racked up some points there in the final category of best actors. You guys were forgetting about uh, Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. Ronald Coleman in A Double Life. How about Paul Newman in The Color of Money? He was the fourth oldest best actor. And the third oldest, which I think, Terry, you were kind of going this direction with Lionel Barrymore, it is someone by the name of George Arliss for a movie called Disraeli in 1929. <laughs> yeah, we were going to come up with that. That would have been impressive. <laughs> Lionel Barrymore didn't win. He didn't even get nominated. I just looked it up, which is a bummer. It was a good guess. I, I was almost, impressed. I, with that I thought that was impressive. Yeah, I, it, it was. I was gonna guess either him or uh, Anthony Hopkins for Silence of the Lambs, but I thought he was a little too, a uh, little too young, in that one. All right. Well, that was trivia. Todd won, so Todd gets to assign us some movies to watch, and he gets to start us off with his quote of the day. Uh, my quote of the day comes from my number one death scene. It's probably the funniest like just a random line that it's going to be taken completely out of context but um they they ask uh cliff booth's like i don't remember your name he's like i'm the devil doing the devil's business and he's like no it was dumber than that and 
<laughs> Sometimes I feel that way about this podcast. Uh, it's a great line. It's a great line. Uh, I'll go next. My uh, my uh, quote of the day uh, comes from a movie that hasn't even been mentioned at all. However, I feel like uh, it is appropriate because as I was thinking through the best movie deaths of the last decade, um, I feel like this is advice that nobody in any of these movies took. Uh, it comes from uh, Jim Carrey playing the Riddler in Batman Forever. Uh, when he looks at Two-Face and he says, Don't kill him! If you kill him, you won't learn nothing. And no- nobody took that advice because we just talked about all the people that died. So Nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Zach. All right, my quote comes from Will Chamberlain's uh, luminary return to uh, Fog Allen Fieldhouse. Um, he was uh, less than a couple years away from his death, and a lot of people thought that he did not enjoy his time in Lawrence. Um, but that is not true. He said to the crowd there, it was a devastating thing for me, he was referring to his championship game loss, because I felt as though I let the University of Kansas and my de- teammates down, but when I came, when I come back here today and realize that it was just a game and how many people have shown me so much love and warmth, I've learned over the years that you must learn to take the bitter with the sweet and how sweet this is right here. I'm telling you now, I'm a Jayhawk. I know now that there's so much tradition here and so many wonderful things have come from here, and I'm now very much a part of it and I'm very proud of it. Rock Chalk Jayhawk. Which is the only proper way to end this podcast. Go Heels. Yeah, that was a terrible uh, inbounds pass. Poor, poorly coached. Uh, Alright, with that we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back at you next week with a uh, deep dive. Until then, have fun watching movies and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.